you know, starting a company is always going to be harder than you think it's going to be. Um, there's no like, silver bullet where, you know, you're going to start a, a company worth hundred plus million dollars. Um, there's a lot of challenges and do one have thick skin, but two and have thick skin and grit, but two, um, like be excited about those challenges and view them as opportunities. That's Michael Barlow, co-founder and CEO at Furnish. Along with Michael, we spoke with Lucas Dickey, co-founder and chief product officer at Furnish, and Demarcus Williams, director of Silicon Valley Bank Early Stage Practice. The conversation was moderated by our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Isham Ibrahim. The episode is part three of a series we're doing with Silicon Valley Bank. We're excited to partner with them and share their expertise in helping innovators move their big ideas forward. We've been sharing founder stories from their portfolio of startups, the processes and methodologies they use to innovate, and their insights into the market and startup community. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. Thank you, Frank. And welcome to Marcus, Michael, and Lucas. Um, I, uh, I've been so looking forward to our conversation uh, today. Um, I'd love to start with each of you, maybe just spending two minutes uh, telling us who you are and what your background uh, is and what, what your journey is, uh, has been to leading to what you're doing today. Sure. So I'll go first. Um, I'm Lucas Dickey. I function as the chief product officer at Furnish, um, co-founded this business with Michael. My background is predominantly in product management, engineering, and design, having worked on the product dev side of the house at something like 10 companies now in my career. Um, I always talked about my career being anchored at Amazon and, and effectively doing a paid MBA because functioning as a PM at Amazon is a like getting a, a master's uh, in business administration, but they're paying you to be there. Um, in one of the toughest environments. So that anchored my career and subsequent series of um, VC-backed businesses thereafter, which is what I've done for the next five to six businesses after I left, left at Amazon. Yeah, that's, uh, and, and that last company is where I met Lucas at. Um, I'm Michael Barlow, co-founder and CEO over at Furnish. Um, I started my career as, a, as an investment banker. Now I like to call myself a reformed investment banker. Um, but my background is in finance and in sales. After my time, I started at J.P. Morgan. I jumped over to the startup scene. I thought it was a, a very attractive growth opportunity for me professionally. Um, and the first company I landed at was, was where I met Lucas, uh, who was functioning in product and engineering, and I was sales and finance. And then it was two and a half years ago now, we started exploring this concept, which, uh, which then became Furnish. Wonderful. Demarcus. And I guess I guess I'll end it. Uh, so Demarcus Williams, I started my career actually in the sports and entertainment is industry, um, having worked for AEG for just over four years in a, a business development capacity. And then from there, transitioned into uh, private wealth management, actually worked at Morgan Stanley and the Merrill Lynch Private Bank. Um, and at Merrill Lynch was on a team of uh, about four advisors or so, and we managed I want to say close to two billion in assets, and we were solely focused on uh, building a client base and building those relationships with entrepreneurs. And my focus was tech entrepreneurs, specifically here in LA. And at that point in time, digital media was the the thing in Los Angeles. 
and ended up forming a relationship with at, uh, at that point was the one of the founders of, um, of Maker Studios, who ended up selling that company to Disney. Um, and then he uh, had another idea, as most entrepreneurs do, and he asked me essentially to stop managing his money and help him um, run his uh, his startup. And you know, apparently we uh, didn't do the, the the best job. We didn't have the outcome that any of us had really wanted to. But it was the best experience that I ever had, um, having my hands in every operate in every aspect of the business, from operations to sales to go to market to uh, you know preparing board decks and what have you. So it was great. It was a great segue into what I'm doing now here at Silicon Valley Bank, um, where I oversee our early stage strategy in Los Angeles and building relationships with awesome entrepreneurs like Lucas and Michael. That's, that's fantastic, okay. guys. Yeah, somewhat coincidentally, uh, DeMarcus and I have known each other for probably a decade or so now, having done this dance at multiple startups now. So the world of Los Angeles and... Uh, the tech venture capital and the tech community is very, very close here. Yep, for sure. That's right. Um, well, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that, for those introductions. Um, so obviously today, you know, we're going to talk about the topic for today is uh, blockers to growth um, for startup founders. Um, and we've got you, Lucas and, and Michael, to share with us your, your Furnish uh, experience and DeMarcus, your experience working with a broad range of, uh, uh, of founders, um, you have some very um, unique perspectives on, on that topic. And for those of us listening, for those of you who are listening or, or watching us, um, Furnish is uh, spelled F-E-R-N-I-S-H. Um, in case you're gonna, uh, you're not already familiar with it, and you're gonna, you're gonna look it up. So why don't we start with the, with that um, with with Furnish? Um, tell us about why you started Furnish, how it came about, what problem you set out to solve. What sure, you Michael, go ahead and kick it off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just um, for those who some are probably familiar with what we're doing, but for those of you who are not, you know, Furnish is a it's a subscription service for home furnishings. Um, we give easy on-demand furniture and decor um, for one monthly low price for as long as you want it. Um, and then we give you the option to swap it out, buy it out, or have us just come pick it up. So we're really, we reinvented the home furnishings experience from the eyes of what we'll call the next generation urban professional consumer. Um, started the business again, as I mentioned, two and a half years ago, with a pretty in-depth uh, customer development exploration around man, why is it such a pain in the butt to buy, own, move, sell, store furniture? Um, and why is such a large population of people in North America, largely what we'll call urban young professionals, forced to go through this process and retail had not innovated um, around the changing lifestyles of that consumer base? That exploration and that personal experience was at, was at the heart of why, like why and how we started the business. Yeah, Michael and I both said, you know, we'll call ourselves, you know, anecdata, uh, single data points for our generation, me being on the older end of the millennial generation, Michael being square in the center of it. But he'd moved five times in six years in Manhattan when he was at J.P. Morgan. I had moved 10 times in 12 years. Um, 
uh, down the West Coast, you know, from Seattle to San Francisco to Los Angeles and moves within. Um, and we knew that we were probably indicative of a larger population. And so went and validated that data through, you know, broader uh, statistics available through things like the Bureau of Labor and Statistics or Move.com or Rent.com or Zillow and Redfin's data through their chief uh, economists' blog posts, et cetera. So using both our own personal experiences very rich experiences of like uh, focused one-on-one -on -one surveys and then broadening that to actual yeah. statistical data through, you know, larger data sources and, and said this, this really needs to exist um, given that the behavior patterns, uh, secular trends within the industry were very aligned with our own yeah. and this met our needs. So therefore would likely meet the needs yeah. of a broader population. Excellent. Um, where are you now? Before we get into challenges and, and blockers to growth, um, where are you at now with, with Furnish? You're two and a half years in. What does the business look like? Yeah, uh, I'll start. But I think probably the first year, you know, the first six months was an in-depth exploration. The next six months was building, like building and betaing um, the product. And then the past year and a half has been kind of active marketing push and go to market. Um, as well as expansion from there. And so I think we've solidified uh, like dozens of core learnings around customer development and rationales and motivations and hesitations around why people use our service, why people don't use our service. Um, customer count now in the thousands, which is re really exciting to see 10x growth year over year top line. Um, and at the same time, laser focus on building a sustainable business model uh, which is something we'll, you know, as opposed to a venture fuel business model, which is something we'll we'll go into separately. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning, since this is a Lean Startup podcast, that that second uh, six-month time cohort he was alluding to where we were betaing, like, we engaged in some very common practices around kind of minimum viable in order to get uh, virtuous cycle kind of feedback loops, including yeah. having software that only did um, billing and account management, but actually didn't do catalog management, um, the sort of things you would expect from a common e-com interface. As we were doing early research, we were using Google surveys and PDFs to generate our catalog and then communicating through email. So investing in the customer development process before we wrote the first line of code around the actual yeah. presentation and merchandising yeah. of it. So food for thought there in terms of, you know, good use of VC capital to learn the things you need to learn before you write code, which is oftentimes yeah. a common mistake. Yeah. I just remember the, uh, like doing the first 30 deliveries ourselves and understanding the pain points mm -hmm. around delivery and what people care about. I mean, we have some really great stories uh, back from 2017. Yeah. Neither one of us having worked a service job where we had to lug you know, a hundred pound piece of furniture before a hundred plus yeah. pound piece it's of furniture. It's also great teamwork and, <laughs> and the ability to, you know, build working relationships. Good, good bonding and repair for that. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, I'd love to hear a couple of those stories. I especially would like to hear stories about surprises, like things that you thought were true, assumptions that, that you had that when you ran these early tests, you were surprised it wasn't true. Um, I, I'll give one example, and I think maybe Michael could hop in, and this one's a bit off the top of the mind, but, you know, we had initially assumed that our customer base would be predominantly male. We assumed that our, our male customers yeah. were the types who uh, wanted the convenience and were absolutely ignorant as to the, like, the sort of thing they wanted in their home, and we had a solution that provided that for them. 
um, very quickly and then consistently over the life cycle, at least to date, we are more two-thirds female, one-third male. And we came to find that was because our service offered this aspirational living or inspirational living through, um, you know, value-based furniture access. So wow. I couldn't necessarily get the dream sofa I wanted as a woman if I knew that I was going to be changing homes a couple of times. And, and that populace probably has spent a bit more time since it's a stereotype, but our data kind of proves it out. You know, they've been looking into furniture pieces and just saying, I'm going to move again in 12 months. I can't spend uh, $1,800 in one lump sum or on a credit card that I'm going to pay interest yeah. against for CB2 sofa. But Furnish provides a service that allows me to get access to that sort of furniture um, in a means that's like more, more amenable to me in my yeah. constantly moving life cycle. That was an interesting like reverse of the sort of distribution that we anticipated seeing. And we kind of needed the data to prove it out. And then consistently it's worked that way out thus far. So that was an interesting surprise for us. It kind of a, who is our target demographic and then how did it yeah. play out? And look at that. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask that. So what did you do with that learning? Like how did that impact either product design or messaging or positioning or your, your marketing? Yeah, it's a good good point. So we're actually actively, like, regularly revisiting our branding, and that's inclusive of, I'm kind of using branding as a capital B, meaning every subset of tactics you would use to reinforce your brand. So that uh, marketing that you're using externally off-platform, or that is copy, the voice that's used in copy, that's colors and tones that are used on the website. But, you know, we somewhat have a a sneaking suspicion that we may have actually somewhat gender biased our presentation. We had an early set of design teams and marketers that were actually all female. That may have manifested itself in actually the development product. Now that we have this data point as we're working on our third rebrand, we're trying to be more cognizant of that. And maybe that's presenting the same messaging but somewhat split presentation, uh, meaning like we try to speak to both populaces equally without diluting the value of either, or a more general neutral presentation. Uh, and so that's something we're actively thinking about as we're going through this, this new branding initiative. So, because um, we know our products should speak to both populaces equally, if they might be um, more interested in one value prop versus the other, um, that being said, we have an equal number of value props that should be um, uh, appealing to both genders. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's constant iteration, constant agility from the product, the marketing um, side, and also not to, not to mention the supply chain and the actual furniture we carry. So we're reevaluating some aspects of that too. Uh, but that's kind of the beauty of this, right? And even though we've 10x year over year, it's definitely still early innings for the business. And so many more learnings we're expecting to get, and, and we will likely be iterating fairly, you know, maybe not every six months, but <laughs> tell, our, tell our design team that, but, uh, but at least every year on some major initiatives. And that merchandise point is very interesting for a business like ours. So we're, we're technically a product-as-service company. So we have merchandise, but we offer a broader service offering of which the merchandise is part of it. Um, so it's interesting yeah. to see how that might, you know, impact customer uh, kind of demographic and psychographic distribution. Michael's alluding to that. So the popular color of 2018, there's probably some sort of Pantone reference to that, that out in the marketplace, but was this kind of um, millennial pink or a dusty rose, yet it was 
seem to be equally appealing to both male and female populaces, whereas like gender stereotypes would tell you that pink is predominantly yeah. a female. Well, it depends if the guys had roommates or the guys lived alone. Or uh, what their goals were, which could be a multitude yeah. of things. So we, it's a fun challenge to say like the physical product is something we have to be thoughtful yeah. of and the digital service offering and the marketing yeah. against it. And it's a, it's a, both a problem and a challenge, yeah. but like we stepped into this business partially because the challenge was appealing to us. Right. And it also represented somewhat, which we'll talk about later, part of the moat. There's complexity associated with this business mm -hmm. that makes it hard to just step into, whether that's circularity and, and reverse last mile logistics, which most of the major, major endemic players in furniture don't have to deal with, or even retail at large. Your Walmart's, Target's, Amazon's are not doing significant reverse last mm -hmm. mile logistics. Um, or on the merchandising side, lessons we've learned, yeah. and package that all together, it becomes yeah. an interesting mode of complexity. Yeah. Um, what, what, one other anecdote I was going to offer around, <laughs> so, yeah, lessons and surprises. It's, you know, a customer can have a very seamless digital experience, but at the end of the day, the face of our brand is the person walking in and delivering the furniture. And so I, I mentioned earlier that Lucas and I did the first 30 deliveries on our own, um, we learned a lot about what matters to customers in the home, pre-assembly versus non-pre-assembly of furniture, how to balance customer expectations with the realities of like um, LTL transport and potential breakage in between. Um, so we've gotten actually pretty scientific on a lot. So one early learning um, that we had is there's these little felt um, stickies or platforms that you put on the bottom of chairs. And they can make or break an experience on a delivery. And so regardless of how great all the furniture is, if the dining room chairs don't balance, regardless of the actual like chair structure themselves versus the floor being warped and it's the apartment building's problem, you have to have these because they are the delighters at the end of the day. Um, and now that we've done, you know, so many deliveries as a company, we have a delivery kit that goes out with every delivery and those are always included. Um, it was just a, it was a repeat, um, it was a repeat, uh, ask dynamic raised on our first deliveries and, I, and, and it's come up on probably free dining chair. So anyway, just a cool, cool I love that. I love that one. Um, DeMarcus, I'd, I'd like to get your perspective because, you know, these guys, obviously they have a, a learning mindset, um, right. and they're constantly experimenting and, and, and learning and turning those learnings into, um, uh, the, back into the, the customer experience. Um, how common is that when you're working across, you know, working with lots of, uh, startup founders, how common do you see, how often do you see this, this learning mindset versus having to coach them on it? Um, I think the smart ones want to learn and it's just about learning from each other, learning from other entrepreneurs. And that's one of the things that we try to do here um, at Silicon Valley Bank is just provide that platform to enable founders to, you know, interact with each other and, and just kind of share best practices, share ideas with each other. Because at the end of the day, you know, founders want to meet with each other and talk to each other and, and really kind of hear from each other war stories, um, get advice from each other. And I think it's, that's a very critical aspect of entrepreneurship or really just growth as an individual, as a professional. I mean, for me, it's, it's, I'd rather just sit back and, and listen and, and kind of be a sponge than be the one that's 
out there, you know, projecting and, and giving folks my, my point of view. I, I prefer to sit back and, and listen. And I think, you know, it's often the, the you know, the, the, the smartest people do have that desire to, to, to learn and, and be a sponge and be able to, uh, to adapt and iterate those learnings into either their, their business or their own personal lives. Got it. Now let's, let's shift gears and talk about the main topic of our discussion today, which is obstacles or blockers to, to growth. Um, starting again with the furnish uh, uh, experience and, and then maybe the markets you can jump in uh, yeah. at the right times to you know, provide the, a, a broad perspective. But from, from you guys' perspective over the last two and a half years, um, what have, what, what blockers or challenges have you run, uh, into and how have you addressed them? And maybe, maybe you can talk because there's different types of blockers. There's, uh, blockers that are internal to the, the, the organization and how you manage it and, and, and set it up. And then there's external ones, uh, uh as well. So, um, feel free to approach approach this question however you feel comfortable. Yeah, I think that the both of us have prepared separate sets of kind of responses for you. So Michael will go first and I'll dive in with a separate set. Yeah, great. I, I mean, I, the, the initial reaction here and even upon further reflection is it, it really comes down to the core team that you've built out and the people who are in the trenches with you. Um, and so Lucas and I, like, you know, a very important part of setting this business up was having co-founders behind it because the ups and downs, you know, the ups are pretty high sometimes, but the downs are also pretty low. And I think the notion of having someone there with you going through it and is equally incentivized as you going through this and, and pushing forward a vision that you just believe has to exist is so critical for the longevity of a company. And right underneath kind of the founder dynamics there is having an incredibly strong team um, there that you trust to be able to push forward key initiatives, quick thinking, folks on their toes, um, with strong experience to boot. And I think what we've been able to build from an early, like in early days, in terms of the engineering team that we hired out early, the director level positions across sales, BD, finance, ops, um, and tech have been just incredibly valuable. And a mishire in any one of those positions, you know, we can see um, in hindsight could could actually really cripple a company. So it's, yeah. you know, you don't have that many at bats, honestly, in the startup world. Um, you you time is so valuable, and your team is so critical. Um, and so you talk about blockers for growth. It's it's about hiring and it's about retention. And the cool, the great part about this is, you know, a good team continues to get better and better because you attract better and better people. Um, and it's just something we've been very fortunate at in the first two plus year of the company, but, um, but I could see many other, many other ways that, uh, that that could have gone wrong for other companies. Yeah, I, I think um, growth blockers is somewhat, um, sounds like a binary proposition, right? Like mm -hmm. the blocker is either preventing you absolutely from moving forward or not. I think another way to look at it is somewhat like a, a speed bump or a friction point or impediment to rapid growth. So you can still grow, um, but not at the pace you'd be able to do if you did things right. 
So, you know, one thing that, that, you know, we're thoughtful about in this aspect is kind of, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, or if you're to quote, you know, Mark Andreessen, like all software is just the, the bundling or unbundling of pre-existing software. Like if you actually internalize both of those mindsets, you can actually be thoughtful about using commoditized software service off the shelf in areas that you don't need to be a, like a core competency. It doesn't need to be a core competency for you. You don't have to be a functional expert in it. Whether that's payment tech, you can use Stripe or uh, Braintree or any number of other service providers. Whether it's CRM or MarTech, and there's a laundry list of people doing that. A lot of software-focused companies have a tendency of kind of not build here syndrome which admittedly coming from my Amazon background where they build literally everything for themselves, I had to fight my own tendencies um, to build some of that. So you had to be really thoughtful about, you know, in a business like ours where an ERP system is really important, like doubling down on what could be thought of as a commoditized software, but knowing that the reverse logistics and asset management part of our business is critical, that was an area to focus on. But all the rest of it, we needed to be thoughtful about saying, I don't actually need my engineering team building that. And that, if I did have them do that, that would represent an impediment to rapid growth. So just being really thoughtful about um, like not reinventing the wheel if you don't have to. And that same mindset can happen outside of software too, right? Whether it's best practices in any subset of what your business does, whether it's accounting or um, receivables or anything of that nature, like do I need to be a functional expert? If not, can I lean on somebody else? Is there a subject matter expert I can bring on as an advisor, whether a paid consultant or an equity participant, or using one of Michael's favorite phrases, like a kitchen cabinet of advisors um, that you can dig into to pull those things? Yeah. So I would say we somewhat, um, uh, there's a fun phrase that I'm a big fan of lately that Ben Horowitz uses heavily in his new book, um, uh, where he says he counter-programs himself. He knows he has a tendency to be hyper-verbose and talk endlessly, so he builds a meeting structure that forces a clear agenda and prevents him from like just opining endlessly. Um, so we, we would counter-program a tendency to have a not-built-here syndrome by saying, hey, engineering team, press back against me by sometimes yeah. you know, assessing the marketplace. So it's a long-winded way of saying like being mindful about what you really need to do as a core competency versus what's actually going to differentiate you in the market to the, whether it's the venture community or the consumer who actually doesn't care what ancillary software you're using to provide them with the good. They just want to know you're providing them a good service. So being thoughtful about putting your brain power uh, into that subset of, of your business, what arguably look, the most important part. Look, if I, I, um, I think this is actually a common pitfall. And I wonder if you've reflected on um, the causes of this tendency, since you yourself are, you know, have that self-awareness, um, just so that we can help the folks that are, that are listening to us that might not have that self-awareness, what, what causes you to have that tendency and that mindset of not, not built here? I mean, part of it is, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm a non-engineer by trade. I have a philosophy poli-sci undergraduate, but I've worked with engineers my entire career, and I contribute to the code base on a daily basis despite not being an engineer, right? Um, so I will say that I'm going to kind of include myself here a little bit. There's an element of kind of pride uh, of work that comes with writing the software yourself um, and an inherent kind of distrust mm -hmm. of what others have done if you didn't participate in that process. 
So I think it's just the self-awareness. You need to remind yourself that, like, again, this doesn't need to be your core competency. Someone else, you know, I'll use Stripe as an example. It's a multi-billion dollar valuation company. They have a lot of engineers. I think it's multi-thousands. They're applying their daily brain power against that. It's a bit of trust, right? Um, and then being just thoughtful about what parts of their platform you, you need or want to use. So there's really rich you know, infrastructure as service, platform as service, software as service that you can get, whether it's Google Plat, Cloud Platform, AWS, you know, Microsoft or Azure that you can use on one side, all the SaaS platforms on the other. I think it's just part of um, if you're doing any sort of build, borrow, buy analysis where your product management is working closely with engineering to make those decisions, guys, do I need to be, again, it's just a constant reminder, is this fundamental yeah. to our business? Um, not just from a table stakes perspective, but needing to be a, a core competency. If it does need to be for the long-term like value of your company, then sure, heavy up on it. Or consider, you know, a common mantra here for us lately is like crawl, walk, run. Yeah. Can I can I crawl with Stripe and then move to walking and running by taking, you know, using I mean, this is a very specific example, but using their subscription billing platform. Um, initially, and then saying the complexity of our business actually means that we should probably be moving off of that to their charge platform, which is like a more off one-time one charge activity, and then building business logic ourselves. So it's the distribution of those, like um, the amount of effort you should be doing on each thing. So I think the tendency comes from that pride, which is somewhat a good thing. Pride, pride like factors into motivation and um, you know interest and desire. Um, but again, you have to counter program yourself a little bit and say, guys, like, where can I be prideful about the quality of my work um, and do something that's novel and innovative? And, and where do I actually just need to grind? A uh, really good article recently from Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures where he said it's all about the grind. It's all about the hustle. Uh, there's a lot of bright and shining, you know, innovative focus and you lose out on the grind and the hustle. And so just being mindful that a certain amount of what you're going to do is grind and hustle. Um, whereas another distribution. So it's 80-20. You might end up spending, you know, 80% of your time. We all know the creative principle, so I don't really need to get into it, but just being mindful of that distribution. I think Lucas and Michael really hit the nail on the head. I mean, from what I've seen, oftentimes the biggest blocker can be the entrepreneur is or herself and them not understanding or them not having the ability to get out of their own way and them not having the ability to surround themselves with the right people who are willing to really check them and let them know, you know, when they're doing things wrong, when they're doing things right, when their time should be, you know, better spent elsewhere. Um, you know, that, that can be ultimately detrimental to the business. If, if the entrepreneur or the founder that's running the business is, is the main blocker, the main impediment to the business succeeding, then inherently, you know, the likelihood of that business doing well is, is very slim. There's, to piggyback on, on uh, DeMarcus's point there, I mean, I think we can use, like, broader cultural reference points. Like, the delusion complex of founders is really important, right, because it's what has you tackling these what seemingly impossible challenges. At the same time, you, seem, you need a bit of grounded approach, right, pragmatism, and you have to balance those two. And so, like, using popular lore, um, you've got the, the, the vortex that was Steve Jobs and the things he was able to convince himself of, um, and amazing things came out of that. At the same time, behind the scenes, he was balanced by Tim Cook, right? Um, so there was a healthy 
pragmatism balance with delusion balance, and that same thing probably needs to be applied in software development or service development yeah. or processes and practices. I heard you guys talk about um, hiring the right people and, and retaining them and building, building the organization and, and building on DeMarcus's um, point now about having people that can um, offer this counterbalance as well, not just amongst, between the two of you. Um, what, tell me about your, your experience building the team. How are you finding the right people? How do you know they're the right people? And then as, as the, I'm not sure what the size of the team now is, but as the team has grown, um, what, what processes or infrastructure have you put in, organizational infrastructure, I mean, have you put in place to ensure that you can scale the organization and you can gain leverage from that scale. Yeah, I'll, I'll start here and then it's a, it's a great point. It's something that we, as we've grown the team and the answer is we're around 35 people now, um, we've definitely had to take a step back and be less individual contributors 100% of the time, more culture carriers and managers, um, which we had both managed teams and organizations before. Um, maybe not for me of this size. So it's definitely been, uh, it's definitely been a growth curve that, on the executive perspective. Um, but I think one thing that we did early on were 360 feedback, um, cultural principles, um, and operating values of the company. And then, you know, Lucas, why don't you touch a little bit on those? And then um, kind of the last, I'd say, uh, pillar is quarterly leadership planning. Um, and then holding the team accountable and building kind of momentum through goal setting and achievement. Um, but that is kind of best practices generally. And you get there as you kind of move out of MVP into growth mode, which we're fortunate to be in right now. But why don't you talk a little bit about the operating values? Because again, that's definitely a pillar for us. Yeah. So we, we invested pretty heavily on operating values for our business. So, you know, if you want to use kind of a Jim Collins mission, vision, mission, vision, value, that value portion of it, we heavily invested in an organic process at the company. I'll call it structured organic. We actually looped in 10 participants or our first 10 employees into our operating value creation process. Um, I'm going to name check a good friend here. He's a PhD named Matt Dubin helped us with this exercise, but he knew that, you know, we wanted to use um, a common core operating value as a, we'll call it a self-selecting bias for the hiring process. So sufficiently diverse on a number of other fronts so that we didn't have a myopia view that comes with a bunch of homogeneity. Um, but on the operating value principle side of things like be empowered, always get better, care for the communal, drive the mission. He helped us come up with these really you know, pithy and short memorable statements that we can use to inform behavioral questions during an interview process that we can use to validate through candidates, you know, previous history. Um, and then we you know, double down on those points over the life cycle of our business. So we, during our weekly retro sessions, company-wide, we try to call out specific instances of um, always getting better or caring for the communal because as CEO and co-founder, um, you know, me being co-founder, Michael being CEO, 
the, the kind of that cultural torch bearing that he was referring to, oftentimes that's just being repetitive, right? It's repeating the things that are really core to the company to make sure that everyone hears it and it gets instilled in the daily life and practices of the business. So we doubled down on that. And then I would actually say that like Michael and I worked together at a company that was uh, co-founded by a former Amazonian. I worked at four companies founded by Amazonians, if you include Bezos himself. Um, and then we said like, look, using behavioral interview process as a, a filter yeah. for who you're bringing on board is, is almost a better uh, indicator than any sort of arbitrary case studies, um, which is why there's a lot of obsession over Amazon's leadership principles and you know how they get that manifested for better or worse in the company. Um, and um, so we, we've internalized that process. I internalized it, Michael internalized yeah. it and said, we have to have these operating values that we live yeah. and use as a screener for, you know, people are going to be great participants and the community that is our company. Yeah. You always ask like, what, what, what is culture? You know, it's yeah. sort of a, a intangible, but in many ways it's an, it's an output of the team and the operating values that that team lives by. Um, and, kind of even going full circle here back to my initial answer around what's the largest kind of blocker of growth, it's the team itself in many respects. One, you know, to use your phrase, you have to get out of, you know, sometimes founders have to get out of their own way, but two, they really have to, to trust and empower those in the trenches with them. Yeah, and I think you actually alluded to something when you used the word leverage. Uh, Michael and I, that's one of our favorite words here. Um, we're, we're both acolytes. Financially and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Use that leverage. Use it. Use it smartly, intelligently. Right. So on the, the non-financial side, which I'll speak to as the non-banker in the room, um, you know, we, Michael and I, are both acolytes of Andy Grove's high output management, and he talks about leverage as like the opportunity to kind of create exponential value by teaching others so that they can, so it's somewhat teaching someone to fish instead of fishing for them or laying, laying out through things like operating values or very clear goal setting so that I don't have to, or Michael doesn't have to be a bottleneck to exponential growth. Um, so we're a big fan of thinking about how we and our reports and their reports are all ultimately creating leverage, which could be software processes. It could be human processes. It could be yeah. just being clear about direction. So Big fans of leverage, and that manifests itself in yeah. kind of our day-to-day -day business as well. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> we have about 10 minutes left, so um, I want to make sure that we've covered some really good topics right now around team, uh, around not inventing the wheel, um, around getting, getting, getting in our own way and how to create leverage in the organization. Um, what, what's another important challenge um, that's gotten your speed bump, as, as you call it, that's gotten in your way of, of fast growth? Yeah, I think, you know, this is kind of off, off the cuff. Um, one thing that's critical to the continued scale of a company is, is the ability to storytell. And if you think about my role as CEO, as it's evolved, from like either we'll call it round to round, but hi, like hiring swap to hiring swap is very much it's very much sales, and that is my background in many respects. But it's it's sales for external corporate like and business development, yes. But more importantly, it's it's sales inside the organization. It's sales and motivation. Um, yeah. Coming back to the team, 
but you know, sales being equating to storytelling here. But then it's also storytelling to the external investor community on, you know, wh- why do you deserve to exist and why do you deserve to define the world or category in this way? And I think I, you know, now starting to work with an executive coach, it's been, you know, just reinforced how critical ultimately that is um, across, like, across functions. And I think that is, that's where I could have probably done a better job early on, and we've been fortunate to have the success we've had to date. But you constantly have to get better at that because as you get bigger and bigger, you know, the challenges and hurdles you have to meet as a business get bigger and bigger alongside that. Yeah, I think this is an area where we're, we're very self-aware. I'd say we actually do a – Too self-aware, dare we say? Maybe, yeah. I, yeah. I think we actually do a pretty good job with the, like the, the power of – you know, narrative and, and, and storytelling, storytelling, but we also want to have this feedback loop where we continue to improve ourselves. And I know it's probably helpful for this audience that's listening that, like, specific anecdotes, right? So occasionally the power of narrative is knowing the audience to whom you're speaking, right? So we'll use investments in the, you know, VC pitches in particular, and I'll, like, abstract away some of the specific details here. But knowing the audience of the particular partners that are in the meeting if you can do your research about things like what's their previous portfolio experience, maybe something that caused PTSD for them, and they're maybe a little uh, particularly or over-indexing in how mindful they're being about future investments in that particular category. That means that when you're approaching with your narrative, you need to be sure that you set it up to get ahead of that um, early on in the conversation to make sure you set yourself up for success in that particular investment conversation. That's a narrative tool, right, is knowing the audience to whom you're speaking and making sure to um, not massaging is kind of a pejorative term here, but massaging it to present it the way that it needs to be heard by that audience. Yeah, and the same thing with recruiting a team, right, and we'll all constantly focus back on this, but you're recruiting people with specific experience because they're going to help your business get from zero to one or one to two or two to a hundred, and that's a huge exercise in storytelling. And as you continue to hit milestones of the business, the team you're recruiting has to be more and more senior and experienced. You know, and it's not always that the team that's gotten you from zero to one is the same team to get you from one to fifty, um, or any interval in between there. Yeah, I think I'm going to add one more thing to this, which is that you know Michael uh, and I have both learned this, and we've seen it evidenced in other companies' work, which is that story of narrative or storytelling also requires um, a certain amount of consistency. Um, and you, you need to make sure that you, you kind of fulfill promises that you make, especially internally in this narrative context, because guess what? As a collective entity, they've got a really good memory. Um, so you can't somewhat sociopathically switch your story on a regular basis because that will hurt you on things like retention. Fortunately, we haven't had that issue, but we've seen it in other businesses where the narrative is jumping all over the place, um, which makes things like retention hard because you promised me this when I was interviewing. That's not what I'm seeing here. Or I've been here and you've changed the narrative on me X number of times. Yeah. That's hard on things like re- recruiting and retention. And like Michael said, this is a business that's built on talent. You know, startup world is all about knowledge workers and they're thoughtful people who are being, you know, thinking yeah. about the narratives you're presenting to them. It's also just not easy. It's not easy for, like, any founders to 
you know, cause you're, you're, you're in uncharted territory by definition. Like no one has done this exact thing you're doing, um, as good as you are going to do it. Right. Um, and so having that kind of consistency is not easy. And I'm sure a lot of other entrepreneurs that are listening have, uh, have, have, have encountered that too. And so you can't like, there's no way to, there's no way to be perfect about it, but, um, but there's ways to do as good of a job as you can. Yeah, definitely a balance and threading of needles going on there. You know, one of the things that I love about storytelling and, and narratives is, um, uh, you know, aside from the cultural benefits that you guys are, are talking about, because I think some people that I've, that I've encountered kind of see these kinds of practices as fluffy. Um, but in fact, there's, there's tremendous business value to, to storytelling, the least of which is that for you too, A, to be consistent, and B, to have an effective message and story, you yourself have to hone that message, and it has to be really, really focused and very, very clear. And you can't do that if, if your business isn't focused and, and clear. So in a way, it kind of forces you to run the business in a very um, disciplined, disciplined way to have that consistent message and to live up to live up to it. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And you probably yeah. see that things like public companies where the CEO says something that doesn't necessarily match their quarterly filing, right? So if the narrative isn't consistent, um, that's going to reflect itself on how analysts are going to respond and how the market's going to respond. Um, and then, you know, you don't see that as much in the private markets that we operate in in startups, but people are definitely mindful of, of that. So, yeah, yeah it's, it is very much to your point, you're having to be focused on your story, yeah. which in turn focuses your business, and those two need to be like mm -hmm. cohesive and, and tied together. Right. Awesome. Um, well, I want to give each of you a, a, a last word here. Um, and, you know, Lucas and Michael, maybe if, if I can have each of you talk about looking back at the, the last two and a half years, if there is one thing that you wish you could do over, what would it be? Question we didn't prepare for. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I, you know, I'm not, maybe I want to answer your question directly, but one, it's, it's crazy. It's been two and a half years. So time will completely fly by. Um, and two, you know, starting a company is always going to be harder than you think it's going to be. Um, there's no like, silver bullet where, you know, you're going to start a, a company worth a hundred plus million dollars. There's a lot of challenges. And you have to, one, have thick skin, but two, and have thick skin and grit, but two, um, like, be excited about those challenges and view them as opportunities. Um, because if you view them as kind of significant obstacles without a kind of can-do attitude, it will, it will certainly drag you down to a point where, especially if you don't have a co-founder, um, it, it will be a challenge. It will be a challenge for everyone. Um, I'll also, I'm going to respond with what's arguably a bit of a, a formulaic approach here, which is, I think sometimes we may be engaged in analysis paralysis uh, that is mm. kind of antithetical to some of what I've been preaching here. Uh, but I think we've been, you know, in the latter half of the business, we've been really thoughtful about kind of philosophies like speed is a habit and do more faster, right? So being thoughtful about the things you need to deliberate to a certain extent versus sometimes you just need to make a decision and move forward. 
which is, you know, another kind of Andy, Andy Groveism. Sometimes indecision is far worse than making the wrong decision, which you can quickly learn from and move on. Um, and I think there's probably a number of instances in the first year of the business, especially as first-time founders, that we may have deliberated over things that just didn't matter as much as we thought they did. They were like kind of our own internal optics. Um, and, and now we've kind of gotten a better uh, feel for things like that. So, you know, as part of creating leverage, also building in yeah. you know, our culture, the speed is a habit and do more faster is something yeah. that we probably should have done earlier. Yeah. A lot, lot of learnings, but also an incredibly rewarding path. So Marcus, cl cl closing thoughts from you, sir. Um, well, one, I'd like to thank you guys for, for jumping on and, and participating. I mean, it's, it's been awesome. I, I wish we could do this on a weekly basis. Can we do this on a weekly basis? It's going to be like a therapy session. <laughs> you know, put it in a quarterly plan. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I think, I think this is great. I mean, I think you guys touched on a lot of topics that are pertinent to the founder's journey. Um, you know, one thing that I, you know, wish I was, was, was better at. And, and one thing that I, I definitely want to do more of in, in 2020 is just be, be a little bit more empathetic. I think sometimes, you know, we, there are a lot of demands that are placed on, on everybody. Um, and just taking time off and just kind of, you know, reflecting and, and sitting back and trying to look at someone else's point of view from, from, from their shoes, I think can go a long way. Um, so I think, like I said, in 2020, one of the things that I, one of the mantras that I want to speak to is just being, you know, more, more empathetic. It's a great, great note to, to end on. I want to thank each of you, Lucas, Michael, Demarcus, for um, for making this time to share uh, your very, very valuable learnings with the Lean Startup uh, community, and uh, wish you all the best um, as you you grow and, and scale, uh, uh, furnish. So thank you all very much. Thank you for having us, and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Really enjoy this. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. We also have a blog that goes along with this episode at leanstartup.co. If you're seeking to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to your organization, Lean Startup Company can help by providing training, coaching, and consulting services. To learn more, visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. Thanks for joining us.